Okay, uh, tons of announcements. Uh, one more, and then I promise it'll be the last one. But I wanted to encourage everybody who's a member. Well, first of all, if you're not a member, please check out the membership class. I apologize. The slide said March. It's not March. It's November. It's just in a few weeks. So come out to that. But if you're already a member, then I want to encourage you, please consider submitting a nomination for elders. And the reason why is because the vision of our church is we want to become an elder-led, deacon-served church. We already are elder-led, but we want to become even more so and even raise up deacons. And this is a great way for you to participate in that. Um, it's just a huge blessing for the church to have godly leaders uh, really serving the church. And we are tremendously blessed to have leaders already, but this is something special. It's more than just leaders. We want to have shepherds, elders overseeing our church. Um, we're already blessed to have uh, a few already, but please consider nominating um, a brother that you feel led to nominate to be a future elder at our church. Amen? So again, if you have any questions, please come and ask me. You can talk to Daniel or Sam as well. Um, but this is a great opportunity for you to get involved in really blessing the church. Okay, with that, uh, open up your Bibles to 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10, and we're going to get right into the Word. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10. And by now, you know where you can find the Word if you haven't brought your Bible on the screen behind me or on your screen at home. But please follow along as I read. This is God's Word. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy, and we thank you so much that, Lord, you are the head of this church, and you're always present in the midst of your church, and we thank you that you're here now, Lord, and we thank you for your word, Lord, your word that brings life, your word that is breathed out by you, Lord, and I pray that you would speak it into our hearts, that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand it, Lord, if there is nothing else we do today other than to interact with your word and understand it, then we have done pretty much almost everything we need to do. Because from that place, Lord God, everything else will flow. Prayers will flow. Relationships will flow. Fellowship will flow. Serving one another will flow. But Lord God, help us. Help us to hear and understand your word. Help us to, Lord God, share it as well. 
And I pray that, Father God, as we do all these things, that you would build your church. So, Lord God, we thank you. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's a joy to be here again and look at this very fascinating and very relevant book for us today, which is 2 Peter. And over the last 2,000 years, as we get closer and closer to Jesus' return, 2 Peter has become more and more relevant to believers, not less and less. And that is no exaggeration. But everything we've been looking at week after week in 2 Peter is so, so relevant and pertinent today. And this is becoming more so. Amen? More so. And so that in itself is a miracle. That's a unique quality of the Word of God. We're going to look at that in a little bit. But that describes our world today so accurately, everything we've been looking at in 2 Peter. And today, we're going to be continuing what we began last week in chapter 3 because we finally started chapter 3. This is the last chapter in 2 Peter. This is the final chapter. And in chapter 3, we are finally introduced to the false teaching that caused Peter to write this letter. So all along, Peter's been kind of talking about these false teachers and kind of their qualities and the teaching and the damage it's doing, but finally we get to hear what it is. And here it is. It was a false teaching that denied Jesus' second coming. And that's all we know. We don't really know anything else about it. But somehow, somewhere, false teachers came into these churches and started denying Jesus' second coming. So we see that right in verse 4. They, the false teachers will say, again, very strange, the future tense, because they're already there, aren't they, Peter? But Peter's also addressing, I believe, future churches. But these false teachers will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So there you go. That was the false teaching that was spreading. They denied Jesus' second coming. And this is more than a denial, but this was a wholesale rejection of Jesus' second coming. And these false teachers, they rejected the Bible's clear teaching that Jesus, the Lord, will come back one day at the very end of this present age. He's going to come visibly, bodily, and in glory. When he comes, he's going to judge the living and the dead, and he's going to usher in the new age of God's eternal kingdom. So that is repeated all throughout the Bible, and they denied that. They rejected that. And they began to make accusations against this biblical prophecy. Okay, this is how Peter described them in verse 3. But they were scoffers. They were scoffing about the second coming. But Peter said, this is going to happen in the last days. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Now, I know that sounds kind of funny. It's a funny-sounding sentence. It's repetitive. But Peter's really trying to highlight a key characteristic of people in the last days. They're going to come making fun of and mocking Jesus' second coming. So last week, we spent the entire time looking at what that looks like, looking at the accusations people have against Jesus' second coming. And we looked at why so many people are against Jesus' second coming. I even gave examples of people rejecting it and twisting it. Examples that were not so weird all the way to the very weird. And by the way, if you ever have a spare afternoon and you're looking for something to do, search second coming cults because you're going to have more than you want, right? There's going to be so much that you're going to find out there. But this stuff is everywhere. People today are rejecting and twisting Jesus' second coming. But so what, right? Why, why is this so important? 
Why does any of this matter? How does it affect our lives today? And so I know a lot of times people come to churches, they hear messages like this, and they think, okay, so? Well, the Bible has an answer to that question. The Bible has repeatedly said, this is significant, this is important, you need to pay attention. So for example, it says Jesus' second coming is called our blessed hope. And we're going to actually look at that in about two weeks. But when you truly understand Jesus' second coming and all that it entails, it produces incredible hope in your life. It actually directs your life. It changes your life. So the Bible says that, Titus 2.13. It also says the final end of human history as we know it, when everything and everyone has done is revealed and judged, that happens at Jesus' second coming. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. Jesus' second coming is also when the wedding day between Jesus and his church finally happens. So after all the payment is done, after all the preparation is finished, what a shame to not actually have the wedding, right? Well, God says, no, there will be a wedding. That's when Jesus comes back. Revelation 19.7. Jesus' second coming is also when all the promises God made to Israel. Israel is in the news a lot these days. There's a war happening there. But all the promises God made to Israel, they are finally fulfilled. Zechariah 12.10. Jesus' second coming is also the completion of the gospel. We looked at that last week. But if you believe in Jesus, his death and resurrection, and thank you, God, I'm going to heaven one day, but you don't really believe in the second coming or think about it, it's kind of like rowing a boat with just one arm. It's incomplete. You're lacking a big part of what the gospel is promising. But when Jesus comes back, you're going to receive the completion of the gospel, the culmination of your salvation, Luke 21, 28. And then finally, eagerly waiting for Jesus' second coming is the evidence that you're really saved. Did you know that? There are a lot of proofs of your salvation in the Bible. The Bible talks a lot about how do you know if you're really saved. Well, in Hebrews 9, 28, it says, here's one way. You're longing for Jesus' second coming. You want to see your Savior. And if you do, then that is proof you are saved. So you can easily say Jesus' second coming is the most important and the most repeated prophecy in the Bible. So this is why it matters. It's mentioned in nearly every book of the New Testament. It's mentioned 300 times in the New Testament. It's mentioned in 17 books of the Old Testament. And the early Christians knew how important it was as well. But this is why when they met each other, they greeted one another with what? Maranatha. Maranatha. And that means the Lord is coming. That's literally how they said hi and bye to each other. You show up to a CG, Maranatha. You're leaving a service, Maranatha. They're saying to each other, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. And brothers and sisters, this is also why Satan has such an intense hatred for this prophecy. He is constantly making accusations against it. He's constantly twisting it. Again, we saw examples of this last week. But he's constantly bringing false cries, claiming false returns. He's constantly causing people to ignore it. But Satan despises this prophecy. And Jesus himself said in the last days, this is going to be happening everywhere. It's going to be one of the marks of the last days. But Jesus said in Matthew 24, 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise 
and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, that's a twisting of the second coming, right? All these false Christs, false people saying, I'm Jesus, I'm here. By the way, a lot is happening all throughout the world, but especially in Korea. <laughs> so I found the name of that pastor finally. I mentioned him last week. I finally looked it up and found his name. His name is Pastor Hong. But there are false Christs like him everywhere. He also said in Matthew 24, 37, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying each other, giving each other marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware. So that's a ignoring of the second coming. So whether people are twisting it, whether they are ignoring it, all of it is a rejection of Jesus' second coming. And so please look out for that because we are in the last days. And so all of this is the greatest prophecy in the Bible being rejected the most today. Okay, that's how I see Jesus' second coming. It is the greatest prophecy in the Bible that is the most rejected today. And so what Peter was dealing with in this letter in the first century is everywhere today. This is what we are also dealing with. It is a wholesale denial of Jesus' second coming. And in the 21st century, this is only getting worse. So then, how did Peter deal with this? Okay, what was Peter's defense for the second coming? Well, last week in verses 3 and 4, we saw the accusation against the second coming. Well, today in verse 2 and also 5 through 9, we're going to see Peter's answers against those accusations or answers to those accusations. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And there are four answers that Peter gave, four answers defending Jesus' coming. And if you look at those verses, verse 2 and then 5 through 9, you'll see four of them. God's word of prophecy, God's acts in creation, God's reality of time, and then finally God's desire for repentance. So those are the four answers that Peter gives defending the second coming. And because we're having this event afterwards, this career talks and lunch, I have to end on time. <laughs> so last week I did not end on time. I went like 15 minutes past. So we're only going to get through the first two today. There is a lot here. And then we're going to have to finish verses 1 through 10 next week. So we are going to only get through two today. But these are the answers that Peter gave to these accusations against the second coming. So here's Peter's first answer. Why is Jesus' second coming true? Okay, why is this going to happen one day? And the moment this occurs, everything will transform. Everything will change. In a single twinkling of a moment, we are going to be in our glorified bodies and with him forever. And in a single moment, all unbelievers are going to be judged forever. Okay, why? Why is this true? Well, Peter pointed to God's word. So look at verse 3. I'm sorry, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 3. Peter said, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So right there, Peter immediately points to the Bible. That was his first defense, his first answer against these accusations. And these days, the Bible has fallen out of vogue. Okay, this is not where people would look to first, especially today. But these days, it is no longer popular to say the Bible says. 
You know, not long ago, a very popular pastor of one of the biggest churches in America, he actually told his congregation, you should stop saying the Bible says because it turns non-believers off. It's offensive. And yet for Peter in these verses, the very first place he went was the Bible. He needed to defend the second coming, so he turned to the Bible. And in defending Jesus' second coming, he pointed to specific things in the Bible, such as predictions and commandments of the holy prophets and apostles and Jesus our Lord. So here he is pointing to predictions, prophecies. Yeah, all of that is found in the Bible. And so for Peter, the Bible itself was the first proof he offered for Jesus' second coming. Again, for many believers today, that is not where they would go first. And here's the reason. They're embarrassed by the Bible. It's the last place they would go to prove anything. Yeah, how can you point to the Bible to prove anything? It's a circular argument, isn't it? God said this, therefore God is true. Or this is an old, old book with a lot of things we don't agree with, but hey, take a look. Right? Who's going to believe in any of that? So they're embarrassed by the Bible. It's the very last place they'll look. But brothers and sisters, Peter turned to her first why. Because the Bible is a miracle. When Peter pointed to the predictions of the prophets and the apostles, he was pointing to one of the most stunning characteristics of the Bible. Okay, the Bible is a miracle. But many of you guys might not know this, but the Bible is the only book human beings have on the planet that contains predictive prophecy. This is what Peter was pointing to. He mentioned predictions. But Bible scholars Norman Geisler and William Nix, they said other books claim divine inspiration, right? Aren't there a lot of religious books on the earth? A lot of books that claim to be from God or a God, such as the Quran, the Book of Mormon, parts of the Hindu Veda. But then they said, none of these books contains predictive prophecy. None of them. None of those religious books can predict the future. So the Bible is the only book that repeatedly makes detailed claims about future events. And this is so relevant because we're talking about the second coming, amen? But the Bible is the only book that does this. And all these predictions, and there are hundreds and hundreds in scripture, they have all come true or they look like they're very likely to come true. It's not hard to imagine these prophecies coming true. Is more or less positioned to fulfill every major end time prophecy in scripture. Okay, that is a stunning statement. I'll say it again. But the state of the world right now, according to this book that was written thousands of years ago, the state of the world right now is more or less positioned to fulfill every major end time prophecy in the Bible. So for example, what? Well, Isaiah 66, verse seven through nine, predicted the rebirth of Israel as a nation in one day. Isaiah said, in one day, Israel is not gonna be a nation and suddenly it'll become a nation. That was fulfilled on May 15th, 1948. In one day, Israel regathered and became a nation. That's why they're having these wars right now over all of that. Amos 9, 11 through 15, predicted the regathering of Israel to the promised land after being scattered among all the nations of the world for a very, very long time. Amos said they're going to come back together one day. And that happened and has been happening for the last 70 years. Psalm 83, 1 through 8, predicted widespread animosity against Israel once they settle into the promised land. 
Psalm 83 actually even names specific nations surrounding Israel who are going to be attacking them, wanting to wipe them off the map. By the way, the leader of Iran literally said those words, we are all about wiping Israel off the map, just like Psalm 83 said. That is being fulfilled as we speak. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 predicted a great falling away from the faith shortly before end time events begin to open up or unfold. And so that will be one of the marks of the last days is there's going to be a great falling away of a lot of people who claim to be Christian at one point and they say, I'm no longer a Christian. That is happening as we speak in our day. Even pastors are turning and leaving from the faith. Romans 11, 25 through 26 predicted that in the last days, shortly before Jesus returns, there will be a remnant of Jews that will be saved. Do you guys know, do you guys even watch the news? But there are thousands of Jews coming to faith in Christ right now in the Holy Land. There's a ministry that is doing a great job of outreach. It's called One for Israel. I love that ministry. I watch a lot of their videos. I love their testimonies. But there are thousands of Jews being reached for Jesus Christ happening right now. That is being fulfilled. Matthew 24, 4 through 9, predicted the coming of many false Christs in the last days. I read that earlier. And Christians being increasingly persecuted because of Jesus' name. He said, because of my name, you're going to get attacked more and more in the last days. Is that happening right now? Absolutely. There are more Christians persecuted for their faith than at any other point in church history. And then finally, Matthew 24, 14, predicted the preaching of the gospel to all the nations. And all the nations will hear the gospel and then the end will come. And is that happening? That is happening rapidly, more rapidly than ever before. So brothers and sisters, I don't know if this means anything to you. I don't know if that stuns you. But to me, that is stunning. You should be blown away by that. Literally, you should be baffled, amazed, fascinated. You should become hungry to learn more about what is all this. How can there be a book on planet Earth that has predicted so much about the, the current set of affairs and events in the world today, and it is all coming true? Yeah, how can it be possible that there is a book that was written over 2,000 years ago, some prophecies written over 3,000, 4,000 years ago, that actually predicted events that we are seeing in the world today. You should wonder that. You should actually ask yourself, sit in a room, and for a long time, think about that. How is it possible that we have a book in our possession that can do this? It predicts future events. And events that are not fulfilled yet, they are very likely to be fulfilled in the near future. It is not hard to see that. Things are lining up. So again, brothers and sisters, this is stunning. See, this is how hard and impossible this is. This is a statistical impossibility. Why do I say that? Well, imagine you writing a book like that. Imagine if somebody offered you money, right? I mean, nobody offered money to be, you know, to be a writer of the Bible. But imagine if somebody came to you and said, hey, can you write a book that will predict future events 2,000 years from now in the year 4023? Can you write a book? Can you write a book that will tell us, tell the whole world what the world will be like in 4023? Okay, what nations will be on the earth at that time? How are they going to be relating to each other? Can you write a book that will show us what human beings are going to be like in 4023? Okay, what are they going to be doing? How are they going to be relating to each other? Okay, what are the major issues that the world at that time are going to be grappling with? Can you please write a book to tell me all that? So let me ask you, can you write a book? that can tell anybody what the world will be like in 4023? And the answer is obvious, no. 
It's impossible. And neither can I. I mean, who can write a book like that? Amen? It is an impossibility. And yet what is impossible to us, the Bible doesn't just do once. It does repeatedly, hundreds of times. It is a miracle. It is a miracle. And how is this possible? Because all the scripture is God-breathed. And brothers and sisters, Christians simply do not know that. They might have heard it, but they do not believe it. So let me ask you, how much is it worth to you? How much would you give to have a book that told you specific things about your future and the future of the world that you live in? How much would you give for a book like that? What, what is worth a book like that, honestly? And yet, brothers and sisters, you have it right in your hands. You have multiple copies of this book. I bet you have three, four Bibles. I'm sure, right? You probably have a teenage Bible from high school. You have a Hello Kitty Bible from when you were in grade school. Okay, you have the, the Warriors Bible now in college. I don't know. I mean, there's all kinds of Bibles. But you have it in your hands. And do you know what the greatest tragedy is? The greatest tragedy is not Christians who never read their Bible. And there are so many. There are so many here, I bet. That is not the greatest tragedy, although that is a tragedy. But the greatest tragedy are Christians who don't even know what they have in their hands. They don't even know what they carry around. That they literally have a miracle in their hands. And yet, oh, I don't know if I have time to read this today. And so in their very hands, they have a book that predicts future events for their lives and the world. And yet it is so much more than that. Even if that's all it was, that would be mind-blowing. And yet the Bible, that's just the tip of the iceberg. But the Bible is God-breathed. And so it guides us. It convicts us. illuminates It sets us free from sin. It makes us wise for salvation. It draws us closer to God. It lights a fire for God. Jeremiah the prophet, literally, as he received God's word, he said, it is a fire lit in my bones. I cannot shut it out. I cannot keep it in. It is how God speaks to us. And I don't mean vaguely and just kind of generalities. Oh, yeah, God speaks, right? Kind of giving us some general information. No, I'm talking about specifically, pointedly, I'm talking about he exposes things in our hearts, like no way. There's no way God would have known that. Or why, why am I reading this right now as I'm struggling with this right now? You know, yesterday we had an elders meeting and I was sharing this with our elders. But I told them God has been speaking to me very specific things lately in his word. You know, I wasn't always like this, but I eventually got to a point where the Bible is the very first thing I read. Right when I wake up, my alarm goes off, I just grab the Bible. That's the first thing I always read. I don't say that to, like, you know, try to pretend to be anything. It took a long time for me to get there. But I'm finally at a point where this is what I read every morning, and lately God has just spoken to me so much, pointed things, exposing things in my heart that there's no way. You know, one time recently, maybe a few weeks ago, God spoke something in his word I didn't even know was there. And yet the moment I read it, I immediately recognized it. You're right. That's exactly what was in my heart. Exactly. And I had to repent. And so God speaks, brothers and sisters. It's not only the logos. There are two words for the word of God in the Bible. Logos, the written word. It means more principle. It's a little bit of a philosophical deep word. But it means the written word. And then there's the rhema. But both are the word of God. God will speak. God will speak. And so God speaks through his word. It is God breathed. And so here's Peter's argument. If this book, which is a miracle in your hand, 
says Jesus is going to come back one day. And it says it hundreds of times. In the New Testament alone, there are 300 references to Jesus' second coming. Then is it going to happen? I think we would do well to believe it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It is guaranteed. As surely as every other prophecy that has been fulfilled, this one will happen. Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. So that is Peter's first answer to all these accusers. Where is this coming? What are you talking about? Right? The world's been going on the same forever. He's not coming back. Peter's like, oh yeah, he is. Here's the first proof of it. Long ago, the holy prophets and apostles spoke predictions. Amen? Predictions. Here's the second reason, the second answer he gave. It is God's acts in creation. God's acts in creation. So look at verses five through seven. Peter said, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that, when, that then existed was deluged. Deluged just means flooded, flooded with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So here, Peter is making another argument defending the second coming. But basically, he starts by talking about God's acts in creation. So he talked about God forming the earth and the universe. And then he talked about God's act of uncreation. He uncreated the world by flooding the world. And then based on those two things, he says, judgment is coming, verse 7. By the same word that created the heavens and the earth and also flooded the earth, now they are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment, destruction, by the same word. So that is Peter's argument. So this is what Peter is saying. He's saying, how do you know that Jesus is coming back? Look at God's creation. Look at what he did. And why is that so important? Well, the reason why that's so important is because it says here, false teachers deliberately overlooked this fact. And that word deliberately overlooked means intentionally closing their eyes to the facts, having evidence but refusing to to consider it. They deliberately do that. And what does any of this have to do with proving Jesus will return? Well, the reason why this is an argument for Jesus' return is because the false teachers deliberately overlooked this. God never intervened in the world. What are you talking about? The world's been the same forever. Yeah, sure, God might have created it, but he doesn't intervene. He doesn't interact with the world. He just leaves it alone. And because the false teachers did not believe in a God who intervened and interacted with his creation, and we know they believe that because in verse 4, it says the world continues the way it's always gone since creation. That's what they said. See, no intervention by God. God doesn't intervene or interact with the world. So, since he doesn't interact with the world, there's no second coming. That's not happening either. So because Jesus' second coming would be God intervening in our world, it would be him coming to our world, and he doesn't do that, there's no second coming. Does that make sense? So that's what the false teachers are saying, and here's Peter's answer. No. God does intervene and interact with the earth. And here's the greatest proof. He created the world. That's the first evidence that he interacts with the world. He created it. I mean, what's a bigger intervention than creating it, right? 
And so this is what Peter said. He formed the earth out of water and by water. Now, right there, he's not saying the world is made out of water. Even the ancient people knew that. They would have thought that was ridiculous. Okay, they knew the world wasn't made out of water. So then what was Peter saying? Well, for a Jew, whenever they talk about creation, they're thinking about Genesis 1. Okay, that's their grid. And so Bible scholars point this out, but Peter was most likely referring to the creation of the earth in Genesis 1, 6 through 9. And so in Genesis 1, when God created the earth, what happened? The earth was there without form, and water covered the surface of the earth. And then it says God divided the water into water above, which was vapor, like water vapor in the sky, which became the atmosphere, and then water below, which was the vast oceans covering the earth. He separated the waters. And then it says he gathered the waters together to cause land to appear. So that's how he created one Bible commentator said, when Peter said that the world was created out of water, he probably had in mind the emergence of the earth and sky from these waters in Genesis 1. So this is what Peter probably meant. So from all this water covering the earth, he caused land to appear. He, caught, he created the atmosphere. And so now the earth was being formed. And because God was able to create the world that we have now, through water, he was able to also destroy the earth through water. So this is God intervening in the earth. Okay, this is Peter's argument. He intervenes. He didn't just create the earth and then, okay, you're on your own now. Okay, that would be a deistic view of God. Peter says, no, God intervenes. He interacts. He created and then he uncreated the earth. And this, the false teachers deliberately overlook. Again, that phrase, deliberately overlooked, means intentionally closing their eyes to the facts. Having the evidence, but refusing to consider it. These are the false teachers. So Peter goes, no, God does intervene, and he created the earth. In fact, the entire universe itself was created by God. So then what? That settles it, right? We're done? <laughs> well, no, Hardly. And the reason why is because for the modern person, something like that, what I just told you, is not even worth considering. They might even just get up and leave if you press that point. No, no, no. Everything you see, God really created it. <laughs> Excuse me, I have other things to do, right? They won't even consider it. In other words, they deliberately overlook it. Just like Peter said, they deliberately overlook it. And yet, brothers and sisters, when you talk to the modern person today, their materialistic worldview, and what I mean by that is a worldview, a way of seeing the earth and universe, everything, as just matter and energy. You know, nowadays in the sciences, you can't even say mind. That's actually becoming increasingly unpolitical, or politically incorrect, I should say. Because they're like, no, there really isn't a mind. Everything's just atoms. It's just matter and energy. It's just your brain, right? But for people who have this materialistic worldview, there are massive problems massive problems that are near impossible to solve. I'm not exaggerating. So they don't consider God creating the earth. They might even stand up and leave if you give that argument. And yet in their worldview, there are massive problems. And by the way, people like to point out that there are a lot of problems in the Bible. And sure, there are apparent problems. So when you read the Bible, there might be views on certain social issues you don't agree with, sure. Okay, they talk about the spiritual realm that you're not sure if it, if it exists. Sure, that's a problem. There's an apparent endorsement of things like slavery, maybe even genocide. Yeah, that's, that's a problem. 
That's what it really says. So sure, those things are problematic. But all of those things are workable, right? There's a context in which that was written. You can figure things out. Like, what do they really mean? It can be workable. And yet, when you look at the modern worldview, that materialistic worldview, they have problems that are unsolvable. Unsolvable. The worldview they have cannot explain the world we have right now. There's no way you can get to the world we have now. I don't want to say no way. Maybe there might be solutions later. But for now, it is impossible to get the world we have now. You know, I shared this before, but imagine, this is the way I like to see it, but, but imagine the beginning of the universe we have now all the way to present day is a long chain. And it's one event after another connecting to each other, and then eventually you get to the world we have today. And so this chain extends, let's say, 14 billion years, if you believe in the old earth. 14 billion years ago, the universe began, and then a series of events began to happen, chain after chain, until you get to our world today. Well, that chain has breaks in it, and it is impossible to reconcile. How do you reconcile these breaks? So for example, here's the first break. If all we have in this physical universe is matter and energy, that's all it is, no spirit realm, no God, just matter and energy, how do you go from nothing to something. And scientists, about 100 years ago or so, discovered that there was a beginning point to the universe called the Big Bang. You guys all learned that in school. But there was a Big Bang, and the universe began, and then from that point on, everything came. Well, at that point of beginning, there was no matter, no energy, not even time before that. There was nothing. So how do you go from no matter, no energy, not even time, no space, no time, to now something? How do you get that? Well, that's very, very hard. <laughs> it's impossible. In fact, it's so impossible, scientists are now dreaming up other theories. And there's a lot of complicated math behind it, but nothing's been proven yet, but they're not talking about a multiverse. Okay, Spider-Man really knows about the multiverse. <laughs> but, but there's a multiverse, and they're coming up with theories like that. But the multiverse, that's just kicking the can down the road. Because something needs to explain the multiverse. Well, what created the multiverse? And once you come up with an answer for that, well, what created that? And so you're just kicking the can down the road. So ultimately, that's not an answer either. It doesn't solve anything. But let's concede and say, okay, somehow we went from nothing, not even space, time, matter, energy, to now something. Okay, fine, we'll grant that. Now you have something. How do you go from non-living entities to living? How do you go from just atoms, energy, just matter, to now living things? That's another break in the chain. And why? Well, now we know that all living things are based on genetic code, DNA. And you guys have learned this in school, but DNA literally is like computer code. The four bases, right? A, T, G, C. You need that to code for proteins, and proteins make up everything in the body, everything in living organisms. Well, where did you get that code? Bill Gates himself said that code is more complicated than any code Microsoft has ever written. The most advanced AI computer today, DNA code is more complicated than that. Well, where did that come from? That is genuine information. Don't tell me that came from a random, blind, natural process. Where did that come from? And in fact, the creator, not the creator, I'm sorry, the discoverer of the DNA code himself, Francis Crick, but Watson and Crick, the two scientists who discovered the code, one of them, Crick, he himself said there is no explanation for this genetic code. In fact, I think aliens 
deposited it. It came from aliens. That's what he began to say towards the end of his life. There's no explanation for this code. I think aliens seeded it, right? Brought it. And other scientists are now jumping onto that. I heard Richard Dawkins or, you know, Richard Dawkins is beginning to believe that more and more as well. But then let's grant that, okay? You went from non-living to now living. Okay, okay, two massive breaks in the chain, but let's just grant both. Now you have the first living organism, the first living cell, and now evolution can happen if you believe in that. Okay, so evolution is happening. Well, here's the third break in the chain. Once you have living things, how do you go from living things to human consciousness, the human mind? How do you get human consciousness? And brothers and sisters, this might not seem apparent to you right now going, okay, well, what's the problem with that? People who know a lot more than us, they have thought deeply on this, they've actually even converted. But Anthony Flew was an atheist and he thought deeply about human consciousness and he said there is no natural explanation for it and he converted to Christianity. He might, he might be a deist, but he, he believed in God. He went from an atheist to now believing in God. Maybe even Christianity. But it was because of his meditation on human consciousness. He's like, I cannot explain this. How do you get human consciousness from a natural process? And brothers and sisters, this is getting so profound. This problem is so big that a lot of scientists now are talking about it. And some are actually even leaving an atheistic worldview. But this is not just about evolution. Oh, how did evolution produce human mind? No, they're saying we can't even know things. We can't even use or rely on human reason if there is no God and everything is just matter and energy. Okay, what, what do we mean by that? Well, what is the human mind, brothers and sisters? What is that? That is the end product of a natural blind process, right? Evolution. If you're a materialist, if you believe there is no God, only matter and energy, then you got to say the highest end product of evolution is the human mind. And I love what John Lennox said, but he said, well, let me ask you then. If your human mind is the product of this blind, natural, random process, would you trust that human mind? Let's say you're an accountant and you're on your computer all day, right, accounting. Is that what accountants do, account? But they're accounting and they're adding up all these tax numbers. What if your computer had a 75% chance of spitting out the wrong numbers? Would you trust it? Let's say a natural blind process built your computer. Would you trust that? Let's say you're a scientist and you're measuring, I don't know, protein in little like test tubes all day and there's all these like sophisticated instruments. Let's say 25% of the time it's gonna give you wrong readings. Would you trust it? Let's say you're a doctor and you're having to do some sensitive tests. Okay, you're running an MRI machine and just 10% of the time it gives you completely faulty readings. Why? Because it was just random, right? Some random things came together and made this machine. Would you trust that? So do you see the dilemma? If our mind is the end product of a blind, random process, how do you trust it? What if the mind is wrong 10% of the time, consistently? Would you trust it? How can you even reason and know that what you're thinking is true? There's no answer to that. And so brothers and sisters, I could go on and on. We can go into human rights. I mean, there, it just keeps going. There are breaks to this chain. You cannot explain the world we have today. And yet, when you talk about God creating the world, people dismiss it. They deliberately overlook it. And yet, Peter says, no. Here's the evidence. Here's the proof that Jesus is coming back. 
is because God created this world and this God has intervened in this world many times. Not only at creation, but also during the flood, during the multiple judgments upon sinners, and then ultimately he will come back to judge this world one final time. And so for Peter, he's saying this is evidence. This is proof you can know without a doubt that God is gonna come back. Why? Because we have this world. Look at the world. As sure as the earth you're standing on, right? There's an earth here. There's a world here. There are human beings with human minds that actually work. It works. Yes, we can have faulty reasoning, but we can correct ourselves. It works. Human minds actually function. Well, then if you understand all that, then you know Jesus is coming back. Amen? He's coming back. And so we're going to come to a close. I'm not going to go too late today. But I really want to point this out. But when Peter was approached with this question of Jesus' second coming, yeah, how do you know, Peter? Notice that Peter didn't just blindly say, well, you just got to believe it. You just have to believe. But what did he turn to? He began to reason. He began to turn to these arguments. And there were four of them. We didn't even look at the third and the fourth. But they're profound. We're going to look at it next week. But he started talking about God's concept of time and then God's desire to save all people. But he began to reason with them using his mind. He began to use his rationality. And so in closing, I want to encourage you guys, but for believers, we do talk a lot about faith, and faith is very important, but it is not faith alone, but there is a reason that serves faith. Reason is not above faith, like the non-Christians say, but it serves faith. And so when you come to church, I want to encourage you, there is a time and there is a place when, yes, you believe, but that belief always comes with a support by your reasoning, by your mind. You need to think things through. When you come to church, you don't just say, okay, just tell me something that feels good, Roy, because I'm in church. When I go to school or when I go to work, I'm going to use my brain. But in church, I just want to feel good. I just want to be encouraged. So I'm going to check my brain at the door. No, please don't do that. Okay, you're going to lose your brain. Okay, you're going to come back here and not find it next time. But bring your brains to church and engage in your mind. Engage everything we're talking about with your mind. Because faith without your mind is not true faith at all. You know, it's very popular these days to define faith as belief in something with no evidence. A lot of people say that. A lot of atheists say that. Oh, faith? That's just believing without evidence. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says faith is a deep, firm trust in God based on what he's revealed in his word. (laughs) That is faith. Because of what I see in the word of God, because what God has revealed to me through his word, through the gospel, And the Holy Spirit will do that. But as I interacted with what God said in the word, using my brain, now I have faith. See, it is a supernatural process, but it involves your brain. Amen? And so use your reason. And so, brothers and sisters, especially as we live in the last days, now is the time to anchor your faith deep in God, deep in the word of God, but don't trust in just a blind faith alone but use your reason, figure things out. You know, here's another encouragement, but I want to encourage you guys, just little by little, if you're deep into pop Christian things, like pop Christianity, 
Uh, what I mean by that is just popular Christianity that's very light, doesn't really dig deeper into the things of God, into the word of God. Increasingly, just leave that, please. Okay, don't make that your steady diet. It's like living your life eating Twinkies all day. It is very bad. There's no nutrients. My kids like the word nutrients. <laughs> but there are no nutrients. But engage the word of God. Use your reason. Figure things out. Increasingly turn to the things that really, really challenge you. Okay, is this true? Why is the Bible saying this? What is really here? Okay, why is this an argument that Peter is making for the second coming? You need to ask these questions. You need to engage. Don't just come to church thinking, oh, I just want to feel good today. Tell me something to feel good. No, engage your minds. Think. Think hard. Think long. But think. Don't be irrational. Be rational. The opposite of faith is not irrationality. Or rationality, I should say. But rationality and faith go hand in hand. And as you do that, then you're going to stand in these last days. Amen? So let's just come before the Lord. Let's just bow our heads. But God wants us to engage, engage with this word. When Peter spoke these words to believers, he was actually writing this letter to believers. He was engaging with them at the level of faith, yes, but also their minds. He was engaging them.